Welcome to Podagogy, a teaching and learning podcast. I'm Chelsea Jones. And I'm Curtis Maloli. We're recording from our homes in Southern Ontario, Canada. I'm currently in Toronto, which is Treaty 13 territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, and also the Dish With One Spoon territory. And I'm recording from Treaty 3, which is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people, and also subject to the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Agreement. And today we're talking about classroom design. Joining us is Terry Peters, an assistant professor of architectural science. Dr. Peters' focus is on building design for health and well-being. Welcome, Terry. Thanks very much. It's really nice to be here. I, I wanted to start with, you know, some of the stuff that's happening on the campus that you teach at at, at X University. And you're involved in the teaching and learning spaces working group. Uh, and I know that working group has been focused on classroom renewal. Um, so I thought maybe you could just start by telling us a bit about the work of that group and, and what classroom renewal looks like right now. Sure. So for the last few years, I've been working with this teaching and learning spaces working group. And the group has a, a range of people from all over the campus. So we've got professors that teach you know, science and math and language and architecture like myself. So we're all working together to um, address the, the general learning spaces, classrooms, and trying to understand what we have with those classrooms, what kind of classroom design we have and, and how we might wanna change that for better classroom spaces. So we started with this classroom refresh project where we did a survey of lots of the different general classroom spaces across campus and looked at basically what were the worst offenders? Like what were the classrooms where we thought, okay, these ones are not at the standard we would like them to be. You know, the furniture is all mismatched or one of the lights is broken or it's outdated in terms of the technology. For example, I'm teaching in a classroom in person uh, later this month. And I was really happy to see that the classroom I've been assigned had the classroom refresh. So it's a classroom has windows kind of at the back and it's tiered seating for one of my big classes. And it's had the lights replaced from fluorescent to nice LEDs. It's been cleaned and painted with new trim. You know, the, the walls have been patched and repaired. The chalkboard is now a whiteboard. So it's just been really refreshed and looks just very inviting. So I'm looking forward to getting back to that. Um, another main initiative of the group was reviewing the classroom standards that was put together to try to have a kind of framework and a, a plan for how we envision the learning and teaching spaces on campus. And uh, the furniture audit, I had some students that helped actually go around to all the classroom spaces during reading week uh, before the, the pandemic hit. And they did a proper inventory of all of the furniture and all the spaces and all of the lighting levels. So that was really informative and enabled some pretty quick fixes of all the classrooms need to have matching furniture that works properly. All the lights need to be working and have the right lighting levels. So those are the main initiatives that we've been working on. You know, it's interesting that you have people go in and do these sort of audits of space and actually look at the material conditions of the classroom. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about why that's so important. What impact does it have on learning and the experience of learning? Well, I think the impression that students have of a room when they walk in is 
really important. It affects their mood and motivation. So things like having all of the furniture matching, having it be clean and bright and welcoming, I think it's just a, it's a good approach to our community on campus. So for that reason, but actually environmental design has been linked in numerous scientific studies to learning outcomes. So the environment that we're in, that we're learning in or teaching in directly affects our ability to concentrate. Um, There's studies that show, for example, good lighting, a view to the outside. These things definitely do impact test scores, um, self-reported motivation in students. So there's lots of reasons to really work on and understand the environmental design of of these classroom spaces. I would also say as as a professor, teaching in a classroom that is set up properly, you know, that's well lit, that there's a window that opens. It's just definitely puts me in the mood to teach and removes distractions for me. Yeah, it's funny. I remember the first time I ever taught in a really awful classroom. Um, and it was the first time I became aware of the impact of a classroom. And, and really what it was, was it was this very narrow room, but it was very long. So like okay. students were so far away from me if I was at the front of the room. It was almost like I, I couldn't connect with the whole class. And you could really feel it in the teaching. Um, I know you do, uh, in your research, a lot of work on things like uh, biophilic design, as an example. And I, don't, I didn't know what biophilic design was until I had first spoken with you. Could you tell us a bit about what it is and if it's something that could be used as a way to kind of, you know, rethink our learning spaces at universities? Sure. So biophilic design is a, a relatively new concept. The, the term biophilia has been used um, maybe since the 1980s in, in, in psychology and in sociology, but it's really been used is in the design of buildings and spaces as biophilic design really in the last 15 or 20 years. So biophilic design is relating to people's innate uh, attraction to other living things. So people like other people, people like plants, people like views of the sky. We like to be uh, connected to nature and other people. So that's what biophilia is. And biophilic design is using qualities of nature and connection to other people in the design of spaces. So for example, if you've ever been in a classroom where it is side lit, so a window along the side of the space, and you can see the sky or you can look out and just rest your eyes for a second and then come back to your attention. That actually is part of, for example, attention restoration theory, which is a theory that we need those little breaks uh, to be able to concentrate. So if you're ever daydreaming, that's part of the plan. You're supposed to daydream a little bit in order to think of good ideas and and be creative. So biophilic design is really having a moment right now because we're starting to have biophilic design be quantified in building rating systems. So starting to become a part of building performance, which is a really big step because once you can measure something, you know, it's much more believable that you would be able to convince clients and and users and people to incorporate this. You know, on the one hand, when we think about, you're bringing up this like this idea that, um, you know, we like to be connected to nature and also other people, that that's part of it. And, and here we are in the midst of, hopefully, um, you know, working our way towards the end of a pandemic where we haven't been in spaces with other people uh, and learning with other people in the same way that we used to. And, you know, I was thinking there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, what does the future of learning look like? And, you know, when do we need classrooms and when will we use classrooms? 
I wonder if you have any thoughts coming from a perspective where you're thinking about space a lot differently. As we think about the future of post-secondary education and what we do with classrooms, do you think that we need to change or at least rethink, you know, what classroom space is used for in our teaching? I think the best way we could use classroom spaces is to use them as more collaborative spaces to talk to each other and to brainstorm and to get ideas. From my experience, at least teaching in the last couple of years with this online learning, sometimes some of the lectures can be done online, maybe if they're designed to not be necessarily very interactive. But when you have a, an exercise that wants to be interactive, like group work or presentations, I feel like that's what we want to gather back in classrooms for. So maybe something that we can learn from all of this online learning is that our spaces need to be sort of worth it. We need to make the trip to campus worth it for our students and for our colleagues teaching. So you want the room to really support you. You want the campus and the room you're teaching in to support collaboration and connectivity and interaction. So I think that if I were to project how we're going to feel going back to in-person learning, I think we're going to want to use the spaces and the gathering together to talk to one another. And the independent working and the non-interactive stuff, maybe that will stay a little bit online or maybe it will stay uh, in a different way. But I think the classroom spaces should be used for connection and for sharing ideas and interpreting ideas. So that might mean that our classroom spaces have to change. Maybe it's not going to work if they're all fixed seating, tiered, facing towards, you know, the professor in a sort of hierarchical way, maybe we need more spaces for collaboration and group work and sharing ideas. I think biophilic design can be a part of that. I mean, it, it isn't just adding plants to a space. It's about having full spectrum lighting, natural materials. Um, yes, also plants or views of plants or sky or nature. But these kinds of ideas of connecting to natural materials or views it's just been proven to have people be more relaxed. Potentially, this will help in talking and collaboration. I just want to pick up on your idea of making the return to class worth it. And it seems to me that some of what you're describing when you describe biophilic design has some connection to do with perhaps sustainability, perhaps topics of climate change. I know certainly in my field of child and youth studies, what we are seeing and what we're expecting is that there's you know, an incoming generation of students who are concerned about these things, who are thinking about the land and thinking about um, their relationship with the land, their relationship with each other amidst a climate crisis. And, you know, I, I wonder if your thoughts on classroom design relate to this or re relate to how universities might respond uh, to some of these incoming concerns. Is there a connection here? I think that's a great question. I think that more and more we're seeing sustainability as being more than just energy efficiency. In the building industry, there's been really a lot of increased focus on health and well-being of occupants. Because actually, when you look at building performance, the performance of the building is almost 100% to do with the behavior of the users. So it's how we use buildings that really impacts the building performance. I'm in my office, but if, if I turn my heat way up, if I leave all the lights on all the time and turn the heat way up and then open the window and do all of these things, there's lots of ways you can really impact building performance through how you use a building, not to mention having more people than expected in a space, 
or in the architecture building, we use the building in normal times, far more than 12 hours a day. The students are in here first thing in the morning and very late at night. So I think that there's an increased awareness of the people that use the buildings impacting the performance of the building and the sustainability of the building. So I think that we need to take a, a wider view of sustainability to obviously include, like you're saying, climate change, uh, things like extreme weather and uh, these kinds of things that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. One way to think about that might be to really open up buildings a little more to the outside. So we do have a lot of rooms that don't have a view outside. We got to make sure we stop building rooms like that because there's something called passive survivability. And that's the ability of a building to survive without us inputting energy into it. So a room without windows, you always need to have the lights on. You're so reliant on that electric lighting and, and other systems. So I think having buildings designed so that you can see outside, see the changing seasons, see the weather, see other people, view and windows and air quality and building control, being able to adapt the building together with like occupant awareness, making people more aware of how the buildings work and how to use them in the ways that make the most sense. So maybe that doesn't mean always adapting them, but maybe it means, I don't know, understanding a bit about how they're maintained over time as another aspect. So I think it's a huge area to think about is how our buildings can help connect us better to our environment and help us understand the changes that our climate is going through and that we're going through. So classroom spaces are, are really important. Some of us spend all of our, almost all of our working hours there. So I think it's a really important area to engage with. You recently had something published where you wrote that the idea of building back better is a positive message, but in any case, there's little chance of things going back to the status quo. I, I'm just wondering, you know, when I think about some of the classrooms that I've taught in in the past, and I think about going back to sort of those dark, dingy basement classrooms and what it feels like to go back there, why can't we go back? I guess what I'm asking is, how do we go back without going back to the status quo? That's going to be a huge challenge. I think we've just had two years where we've learned that certain aspects of online learning do work and are effective, but we've also learned you miss a huge amount of the fun and excitement of learning by being online. So the same with our spaces, like it's going to be a huge shock for people to like put on real clothes and go out the door and see other people in these rooms. But I think, um, it's kind of going back to how things were in a way, like it's in person, but we're going back with this awareness. Most people now have an awareness of indoor air quality. Maybe they hadn't thought about it before, but now when you go into a, a space with a hundred other people, you might start to think, how do I open the window in here? Or why is there only one entry at the top and one exit at the bottom? So I think that we're a little more sensitive to certain situations and crowds so I think that's going to be interesting when we have the kind of first lecture series in our building. We have these uh, departmental lecture series and trying to imagine a couple hundred people in this room we normally meet in that has, it's an internal room. So there's no outside windows. It's just, it's going to be very strange. So going back to our old spaces with our new frame of mind, I think is going to be very challenging. So maybe we'll have to adapt. Maybe we'll have to adapt our spaces move our desks apart a little bit, or I don't know, join together rooms that we had previously used separately. 
I don't know, there, we need to look at these ideas though and, and think about these challenges. It really does seem like there's a lot of uh, interesting opportunities for us to, to rethink our spaces on campus. You know, I, I thought maybe we could end with, you know, given your expertise. At X University, uh, we have a urban farm that's been built on the roofs of some of the, the newer buildings. And I've been blown away, not just by the amount of food that is produced on like two rooftops at the university, but, you know, the quality of that food, um, you know, the, the opportunities for students and faculty and staff to have access to this amazing food. Is this, you know, do you, do you see universities as having, I mean, I don't know, are you involved in any of this or discussions around how universities can design spaces that are part of food production and other kind of sustainable initiatives? I think it's it's a wonderful idea. I think Ryerson is really leading the way in this. We were lucky enough to have Arlene Thronis from the Urban Farm come to our sustainable practices class and introduce the students to what's going on. And I think the Urban Farm is such a wonderful resource. And I think that general idea of treating buildings as resources, as community amenities, as valuable spaces to, to, to meet that are productive, that can produce food. I think this is 100% the way we should be headed, thinking about sustainable buildings, that these buildings are using a lot of resources and a lot of energy and a lot of people's time. So we really need to maximize um, how great we can make them. So the more urban farms we have, the more green roofs we have that are absorbing water and improving stormwater management, but also providing green views, I think this is really important. I think that universities have huge campuses and can really be leaders in this area. And I think that, that we are doing that. And I see other universities around Canada also engaging with this. So I think that's really great. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's so awesome to see what we've been doing with it. Um, I uh, I just I really want to thank you today for um, for your time and and for sharing some of your expertise. One thing that I'm interested in is you know as an educational developer, you know even incorporating something like that urban farm into curriculum, and it makes sense obviously in food studies, and it makes sense in architecture discipline like yours. But I could really see sort of interdisciplinary curriculum projects in places that include you know many of the other faculties on campus as well. So I think there's tons for us to explore here. Definitely. Thanks very much, Curtis and Chelsea. Thanks again, Terry. And also a big thank you to the people behind the scenes who produced this episode with us, production support specialist Chloe Hazard and instructional technologist Sally Goldberg-Powell. We also want to thank the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching for funding this podcast uh, and to Brock University Center for Pedagogical Innovation for their support of Podagogies. 